Hello and welcome to Axlander, a podcast about and for all of you who have left their home to find a new one abroad. So today I'm talking to Roderick, who's joining us live then from Prague, Czechia. Hi, Roderick. How are you? Good, good. Thank you, Eva. Nice to nice to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting. I'm very pleased to have a chance to tell my story. Yes, yes, it's a pleasure. So Roderick is one of the fans of Axlander podcast and uh, the way we met, I mean, we haven't actually met in person yet. Um, and I hope that uh, that will happen and the situation will allow it one day, especially when I travel back home to my home country. And you've been, uh, you've been, a, you've been a fan of the podcast and you're very active on LinkedIn. And this is, this is how we got in touch. And uh, yeah, you expressed uh, a wish that one day you would like to be a guest uh, yourself. And I am very, very glad and very pleased that it happened and that uh, you're here today. So, you know, just briefly introduce yourself before we dive in and listen to some of the amazing stories of you wow. being an expat um, then in, in Czechia. Who are you and what do you do? Okay, right. Well, yeah, Roderick, I'm a coach and I basically help high-performing people create happy, healthy and meaningful lives one-on-one, -on -one, online, across Europe. And my particular focus is on the for fulfillment from work and career development. I have my own corporate rat race, uh, or rather escaping the rat race uh, story behind me. So I use that to help others in the same situation, uh, finding life's purpose, Uh, and, and I listened to uh, the podcast with Vladimir Zuro uh, uh, um, a few days ago, and uh, he strikes me as a man who's definitely been guided by his life's purpose and made a very strong dent in the universe. So if you haven't listened to that podcast with Vladimir, do go ahead and listen. It's very powerful, uh, powerful listening uh, and inspiring. Um, and also, I also help people make uh, easy health and lifestyle improvements because we all know that our Western way of living is extremely stressful. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of small things you can do to really improve the quality of your life, the energy you have, and your, your long-term health outcomes as well. So, so yeah, that's what I do, do it all one-on-one. -on -one. I'm mostly active on LinkedIn, uh, just branching into Facebook slowly. But yeah, I publish every day some sort of uh, advice, tips, uh, thoughts um, to help people work out uh, how they can lead a more healthy, create, uh, healthy meaningful uh, uh, life with the years that they have uh, on this earth. So yeah, and in terms of expatriation, I mean, the reasons I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to be invited and take part in the Xlander podcast is that first of all I have my own expatriation story which mm -hmm. is perhaps a little bit different to a lot of your typical kind of expat community it's more of an emigration story I've also worked because I worked for uh, 20 years in HR so I worked very closely with expatriating various top managers uh, from France to different countries around the world so I have that That's, uh, that's kind of perspective. Uh, and also because I've lived in Prague now for 24 years or something like that, I've, uh, of course, uh, met and worked with many, many non-Czech people uh, living in, the Czech, in Czechia and Prague uh, over the years. And I've got all sorts of stories to tell about how they tried to integrate uh, and what happened and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, thank you very much, Eva. Mm -hmm. So you... So your background is British, right? Whereabouts do you come from then in Britain? Mm, I was born in the Royal Free Hospital in north, uh, north central London, just between Hampstead and Parliament Hill Fields. 
was 46 and a half years ago. <laughs> right. But you also grew up in a bilingual setting, right? This is what I understand. So your background, you kind of went back to the roots somehow? It's Yeah, it's that's, that's the very simple version. I mean, uh, I wasn't exactly bilingual. My mother, I should explain, was born with his Czech. Mm. Um, and she escaped the, the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic, as it was in those days in 1968, after the Warsaw Pact uh, invasion. Mm -hmm. uh, and she uh, sort of made it to London in the end, met my dad, whose only connection really was that he's uh, a musicologist um, and a lover of Czech music. So um, they, I think someone said to him, there's a Czech girl, you're in town, why don't you meet her? And the rest is uh, history, as they say. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but it wasn't exactly bilingual. My mum uh, did try and talk to me in Czech when I was a small infant, a child, a toddler. But apparently, I do have vague memories uh, of this. As I said one day, I don't want to listen to this stupid language anymore. Plus, there were some sort of uh, complications that I didn't start uh, to speak for a long time. I was very late. So when my parents took me to the doctor, the doctor advised, well, look, it's because during the day, you, Mrs. Lambert, are talking to Roderick in Czech. And you, when uh, Mr. Lambert comes home, you're talking to him in English. So his brain is, is somehow confused. And so this, my mum stopped. My dad doesn't speak Czech, so it couldn't be a truly bilingual uh, family. Um, so when my mum stopped speaking Czech, I started speaking very quickly, learned to read, write, speak, etc. Um, but unfortunately, from that point on, um, we didn't have Czech. At home. Nevertheless, I firmly believe that, uh, and those that's amazing, the brains of infants, is that Czech was somehow saved into my hard drive um, for later use. And that came in very handy when I did finally uh, need it later on. Mm -hmm. And so you settled then in Prague and you speak, you're, you're fluent, right? Uh, I'm fluent today, yeah. I mean, I settled there. There was a slightly longer story than that because I was, uh, you know, I had absolutely no intention. And, you know, during the, the, the days, the years of the Iron Curtain, there was never any uh, kind of idea of being oh, sure, yeah. my mum returning back to, to, as it was, Czechoslovak Republic. Um, we did travel regularly on holiday, mind you, I should point out. Mm -hmm. So the Czech, uh, I don't know what to call it now because then it was the Czechoslovakia, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was Czechoslovakia, right? Czechoslovakia and it's Czechia Czechia nowadays, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. In those days, um, so we, I did, you know, me and my sister, we got in the back of the car. My dad drove across Europe once a year in summer uh, to Czechoslovakia and we spent a few weeks there. So I did know my Czech grandparents and Czech family, even if I didn't understand them and then understand me. So, yeah, but I was brought up, educated in Britain, in the English way, um, went to, you know, public school and, and went on to university in, the, in, in Britain. And, um, and what happened is what is quite often behind these stories is that I met uh, when I was 18, uh, a girl from by then, I think, the Czechoslovak Federal Republic still, <laughs> uh, the New Democratic uh, Republic. Uh, fell in love uh, and she is today my wife and uh, that kind of uh, pushed me this way a little bit mm. so um, concerning the language I spent a gap year between school and university mm. I went to my mother's hometown taught English for a year there uh, and that's where I learned Czech pretty rapidly I mean most foreigners have difficulty with Czech and as I said I had it kind of wired in mm -hmm. from a very young age uh, so yeah, my, my girlfriend taught me the grammar, did grammar exercises, and then I went to the pub in the evening and I 
to be able to have a social life in a small town where no one else really spoke English, I had to simply try it out. And yeah, mm. and I learned all the swear words, first of all, <laughs> all the rude stuff. And then I was able to converse quite, uh, quite uh, competently within a year. Uh, pub check, of course. Okay. Cool. But before we get to an, a, another topic and, and, and dive in this whole expert experience and what brought you there as well and how this whole process of settling down there was, I think that this topic that you opened, you know, like bilingual or bilingualism or two languages or even, you know, trilingual children and, and raising children with more languages and different cultural backgrounds I think this is very, very interesting for our listeners and for our audience. And as Axlander is growing, I'm planning a bit more detailed look into this because first of all, I mean, I also, we also have a, a one-year-old daughter who is going to be growing up bilingual. So it's strictly Czech with me. It's Swiss German with my husband, but then it's high German at school and that it's going to be English. Um, I don't see the point of teaching her English, even though many people have asked me that, you know, why don't you just speak English to you? Well, it just doesn't come, you know, it's, it's not a natural, it's not my mother tongue and it's not this natural uh, process, you know, like I believe that, you know, <laughs> when kids are born, so the first sentence that you, you can think about comes then in your mother tongue. So that's the language that you should be teaching your children. And that it's, it's, it's a great, great benefit. I think you can see it yourself this huge benefit of having two languages and basically having these two mindsets as well. But I think it, it can also be a bit challenging. So it is coming. And for those of you who've been asking about this topic and, you know, I've got some guests and I've got uh, certain topics planned for this. So Roderick has opened and started this topic. You already are a product of this bilingual yeah. upbringing. And that is very, very interesting. Well, yeah, and it is a great regret that I did tell my mom not to talk to me in Czech anymore because my life would have been much easier. But uh, I have, I could actually share my personal experience and insight on this because I have uh, a six, almost seven-year-old son. Uh, and you said, you know, it's natural to speak your first sentences to your new baby in your mother tongue. Well, I did, which was English. So, you know, uh, since he's, we actually, we adopted him and uh, brought him home when he was three months old. Uh, and from the first day we set eyes on him, uh, his mummy has spoken to him in Czech uh, and I've spoken to him in English. In fact, I'd say it's a slightly reverse uh, because when we're all three of us together, then actually we try and stick to English more better. Uh, so it's the reverse of what I experienced. But um, he's in a Czech environment. So, of course, he hears Czech everywhere and English less so. Um, what I would say about that is, in my experience at least, never underestimate the ability of children to uh, pick things up. I mean, everybody has that experience. They'll pick up those phrases used at home, you know, that they are observing their parents every second of their waking hour, you know, how they walk. It's amazing when someone has a, uh, you know, some sort of, they don't walk with straight feet or flat feet. Their kids pick it up. It's a learnt from them. So don't never understand that. Secondly, a kid's brain is growing massively in those first sort of eight years or so. So think about how you want that brain to, to grow. You don't want to restrict its growth. On the contrary, you want to give it as many new and uh, interesting experiences and stimuli and uh, uh, role models or examples as you can so that like, brain grows in the way, uh, you know, to be as absorbing 
as possible. You are creating, you're literally creating neuro connections mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the brain. So, um, and my, the experience of my son is that today, six and a half, almost seven years old, um, his English isn't perfect, um, for sure. I mean, his Czech is great, uh, naturally, uh, but it's very fluent. We talk to each other. He automatically switches between languages now. Three years ago, he had his major, I mean, we were in London for a couple of weeks without mommy, and um, and he, he said very cute. It was his, the first time he'd really got fluent in English uh, because we, everybody else was speaking English. And he, we lay in bed that evening. He said, Daddy, my, I feel dizzy. I said, why do you feel dizzy? Because uh, I have these two languages and uh, I get confused and it makes me dizzy. And I thought that was amazing self-awareness and reflection from a, at the time, a four-year-old boy. But I mean, he today he switches between languages easily. If I talk to him, he talks to me in English. When mummy's next door and says something in Czech, he'll respond in Czech. Um, absolutely flawlessly switching um, or seamlessly perhaps um, and, and yeah and and um, he does make some mistakes uh, in English but you know he's going to that's simply because I am practically his sole exposure to English mm. apart cartoons and, and films and stuff which we generally uh, show only in, in English so. Mm-hmm. so don't underestimate your kid is perhaps what I would say to open this topic for your mm-hmm. future podcast and I'd be very curious to know if you get some experts in the subject uh, uh, to talk about it'd be very interesting mm-hmm. I think it's also very uh, interesting it's, it's it's a bit of a different setting when you've got an international let's say if you've got international marriage or international couples so they're they're the two nationalities or if for example I've got few listeners who are, let's say, from one country, both of them are those I would name, and they're from Slovenia, or let's say, uh, Colombia, or so, and they live here in Switzerland. So it would be Spanish, Slovenian, Chinese at home with both parents, but then daycare or school, Swiss German, and then high German. And then often then these kids uh, pick up languages even faster and teach their parents because it's strictly one language than back home so it is also interesting to see the differences there but but anyway yeah so uh definitely interesting to 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 hear your story and about your son and i think it's a it's a huge benefit and as you say yeah let's not underestimate them uh but i think one has to be one has to stay consequent because i think once you like give up or you'd say not not what happened to your mom but it's also not i mean there are also children who who are sometimes perhaps not as you know, they, they don't they don't feel okay with that language or perhaps they don't even have enough exposure, as you said. And that might have been the case because once a year is not enough, you know, like to see your grandparents. And then, it, but if you have, if you can see them every three months, then, and today there is internet and there is TV and, and, and so on and so forth. So it is also, it is also different, but, uh, but yeah, great benefit. Um, what about then, so you've got two nationalities, two mindsets, two languages, two cultures mixed in you. How have you felt this this benefit there for you when you moved to Czechia? And you moved there in the 90s, right? So it was also a bit of a different setting than it's now. So perhaps for some, some of our international viewers who don't have this background, even though we're trying hard, you know, like to also not only entertain, but also to educate uh, people on this, because people just don't know or there it's not general knowledge um what was it like to relocate then in the ninth the in experience the might have been completely different than today 
I imagine it was, and and the you know, Czechia uh, and and Prague were completely different places thirty years ago, most thirty years ago than, than today. Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing that the gap year I spent was in I think ninety two um, or ninety three. Difficult, I can't remember ninety three. I think, uh, and then I moved after university in ninety seven to be with my my then girlfriend. Um, so the nineties. Well, first of all, as a Brit, I was in a privileged. Uh, position. I mean, uh, I was from the West, you know, this was a fairly fresh, new post-communist republic. Um, I spoke English, which uh, the general level of English, uh, the population was very low in those days. Um, so practically for some, you know, in some cases, you could exaggerate to say that a lot of people who moved to this new country out in the 90s, which I know are thousands, of course, from the UK, from the States, from Canada, today very successful people but uh, at that time perhaps their passport to uh, a job was the very simple fact that they spoke fluent native speaker english uh, and i do uh, i do um, also uh, feel that my the fact that i was a native english speaker helped me at certain points in my career along the way it was still it was it was a country trying to get to to grips with the idea of free market capitalism and democracy and a lot of enthusiasm for that a lot of a lot of the rules weren't in place let's say so a lot of people finding lots of uh, wriggle room within the rules as well to to make their personal fortune etc it was it was kind of the wild east was was uh, a term used quite transition period right Absolute transition period. Well, I lived through it as a child. So I was in primary school. So, of course, my experience is somewhat, sure. you know, biased. I don't, I don't remember that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it was, I mean, the, the, the Westerners tend to talk about the Wild East uh, uh, in those days. I mean, again, I'm talking 25 years ago, not, mm -hmm. not necessarily throughout uh, today. Um, so, yeah, so the, my advantage was that I was a native English speaker. It was uh, a romantic, it was a bohemian place. And I say that, you know, in, not in this area, of course, Bohemia is Bohemia, the geographical area, but it was also Bohemia in the sense that a lot of uh, artists and poets and musicians came flooded from, from Western Europe and the Western world. Um, and, and, you know, teaching English, it was easy to pick up a teaching job, just you had to speak, be vaguely literate and uh, to be able to, to be that native speaker who was sent to businesses to try and help these people who hadn't had the opportunity to learn English uh, much previously. Well, if um, I may pause you there for a while, sorry, just because <laughs> before I forget it, I remember those stories about uh, those bartenders flooding in from like Canada and the US, you know, like with mm -hmm. 500 bucks <laughs> in their account. And they went to, you know, like there was state school is, you know, even very, very high, let's say even tertiary institution, you know, just, just like offering them like high-end jobs. And these people were talking about the weather. They even made grammatical mistakes. And it was, I mean, they were, that, that was the time. So that's just, sorry, I, I, you, you, you go on, but I just think how crazy that was, right? Well, there was a huge, there was a huge uh, demand and there was, you know, I mean, it wasn't, a, it was a big supply. People were flooding. It just, there weren't professional language teachers flooding. Uh, mm -hmm. Because again, there was a whole kind of, um, there was the cost of living, which was very cheap if you were earning, you know, or had uh, dollars or pounds. Uh, but at the same time, you're earning potential because, uh, um, you know, these language schools and universities and state schools could only pay a, a, a local salary uh, was, was, 
when you converted it back into your dollars or your, your pounds was was practically nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, there was an expression for Prague used uh, in the 90s by uh, many an American who had uh, flocked to enjoy the Bohemian life. They called it stuck in Pragatory because they mm -hmm. bought spent all their money to buy the air tickets uh, to Prague and then couldn't earn enough money to, in Prague to buy the air ticket back home. So they got stuck in Pragatory. Yeah, I mean, that industry has, of course, very much professionalized the last uh, 30 years. And in fact, I was part of that industry for um, eight years. So that mm -hmm. was also fascinating to see, uh, see how that developed. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, the bars, again, Prague is a slight miss, is a slightly, uh, slight exception, because even in those days, you could get by without learning the language. And today, absolutely, you can live in Prague, and you don't have to learn, you don't, you don't have to learn a word of Czech. Um, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I play foot, I've been playing football with an expat team for, for 20 years now in Prague and, uh, and a good number, of, the large majority of them speak perhaps a bit of pub check um, or, or, or none at all. Um, mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, they live with their families uh, here happily. I mean, they're married to Czech wives and have children, they're, they're settled here, but they don't speak a whole lot of the, the language even after 15 or 20 years now. Mm -hmm. So you said you, you enjoyed this certain kind of privilege. How different is it then to be an Englishman? Well, you've got both passports, right? So to be an Englishman with an English sounding name, uh, we were also touching upon this uh, issue with Vladimir uh, in the previous episode, compared then to a Vietnamese uh, or Ukrainian. I mean, there is a huge Ukrainian and um, like Eastern European community in Czechia. There is a huge Vietnamese community in Czechia. Tell, tell me more about it. That, that's super interesting. Um, yeah, well, that aspect of being the Brit in, in, in Czechia. I mean, yes, it was, it was no, everybody was, people wanted to talk to you. Um, you, if, you know, you were a bit strange. I mean, yes, there were... There was quite a lot of this kind of no it's not possible i don't understand you silly man but um nevertheless uh generally people wanted to talk to you you were kind of a magnet uh, um, especially as you got when you got out of prague but uh yes and of course the experience for someone from let's say from further you know eastern europe real eastern europe um uh who comes here for work from the ukraine as you mentioned romania um uh, even from yeah, um they're, they're looked down upon, I mean, for sure, in many, many cases. I mean, you, you, I don't have to tell you the difference between the tikani vikani, the impersonal and, and the, or rather the, the, or how would you actually call it in English? Dikani, I don't vikani. know what to call it in English. We, we do have that in German. So it's the du und sie, um, or like uh, tu and vous, right? Yeah. yeah, in French. So, so the sort of natural way of, I mean, in Czechs are quite respectable in that sense is that generally, normally you would use the, the, the plural, the, 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 uh, the formal, formal Z, right? The formal, yeah. exactly, exactly. But uh, as soon as you are uh, foreign in particular of different um, ethnicity or from uh, the former Soviet republics, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, then, then uh, quite often it's sort of automatic to, go to the informal immediately even though you've just you've never met them before which which I is awful actually it is I interpret as a sign of disrespect but um yeah so mm. they have a much harder time and uh, again they're becoming for work it's that economic migration just as many Czechs of course have moved west or to where you know centers of economic prosperity to earn their living 
and suffer similar sort of perhaps uh, uh, hardships, um, then it's, it's that economic micro migration. Um, it happens. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, I'm British, and I, I've just uh, Britain has just left the European Union partially due to these arguments about economic migrants, whether they be from EU or, or not. But the the arguments were very much uh, flavoured with this uh, xenophobic uh, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, racist uh, tone whether or not they are based in in fact or not but um anyway so i'm uh, just to but you did take part in the in the election right no, you were voting no, no i couldn't be part of the referendum because i've lived in this country too long and although the conservatives promised to re uh, reinstall the rights for expats living abroad to vote in the referendum they didn't um and so i had no chance to have my say uh huh okay Well, that's interesting. I thought that you would be voting. Sorry. I would have voted if I could, but... I um... saw oh, so you couldn't. You were allowed to. Okay. Uh, your family then, I mean, part of your immediate family still lives in the UK then? Absolutely. My parents live in the UK. Oh, your parents um, both in them. Okay. Yeah, my mother, who is has now been a British national longer than she was ever a Czech national. I mean, she still has a Czech nationality, but kind of citizenship or residence. Um, I have a younger sister who lives in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. Oh, and of course, yeah. rest, there's other relatives, a uh, great grandmother and and or other uh, grandmother. And how was it then for your mom? Again, from your mom is from that generation that escaped the country. I mean, I had Tom here, um, who lives in Prague, who was a son. I mean, who is a son of of Czech immigrants in the US. So, how did she react when you moved there? Because for them, I think from what I understand here, meeting the community here, they're nine, they're now in their like 70s, 80s here in Switzerland, the 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 emigrants. I mean, they live, and it's hard to blame them really, but they live in this kind of nostalgia, and they they weren't able to return home. They couldn't um, enter the country. Uh, they would have been put in prison, many of them, and so on, uh, for you know, for being the enemy of the state and and um, renouncing basically their identity. Then, uh, so it was a very painful, very emotional experience from from what I understood from many of many of them. How was it for your mom? Well, she was very wary, of course. She kind of found it ironic that she had uh, taken those pains to escape. Uh, uh, the system and, and start a new life in the UK and 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 now some 20 years later I was uh, 18 at the time madly in love uh, was uh, was you know um, being drawn back again um, so I think it must have been quite conflicting in her you know uh, in her but at the same time you know into her home uh, to where her relatives live. Uh, Uh, the, the land of her first 23 or four years, you know, so so it must have been very conflicting, and yeah, and it was I could I could feel the resistance to it, you know. She didn't want me to make any foolish young, uh, you know, mistakes of youth uh, mm-hmm. when having, you know, maybe though I never heard the sentence, but I can imagine my run for a mind after all we've done to set him up for a successful and happy life in the UK and. And he's going back to this place that's just—it's a different place now, yeah. Of course, and suffered under those years of, of total totalitarianism. So, um, yeah. Uh, how are we Czechs different to Brits? 
And what do we have in common? I know. I mean, you must have had this question. I mean, just when you think about it. Okay. Well, before, before I answer that question, uh, I, I would like to just say two things. First of all, I am British and Czech. So I, I'm kind of slightly, well, not really unusual, but um, I uh, have always been familiar, I've got to see, and I've steeped fairly in, in Czech culture, even before the, the end of the, 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 the Iron Curtain and the Velvet Revolution. And speaking the language fluently, most of my social experience and life is, is Czech rather than, than foreigner here in, in Czechia. Uh, so that's the first thing I'll say. So I, I kind of, I, I can see both sides and I can also take that step back and try and observe as, as objective as possible. As possible. And the second thing is I absolutely hate stereotypes. I mean, yes, culture and language influences everything about us. Absolutely. But at the same time, each individual has a choice of uh, automatically being who they've been brought up to be or choosing to change uh, or rather see things from a different perspective and, and just simply make life choices and decisions in their minds that can uh, alter their uh, the way they see the reality outside of them. Uh, and of course, we also, you know, travel makes the, uh, enriches the mind. I mean, travel is one of those ways to really see uh, uh, the great things about the place where you're from and also all its faults. Um, uh. So to answer your question though, um, in common, for sure, there's this kind of uh, dry, dark humor. I, mean, the black <laughs> I thought about and that, yeah. Fantastic sense of black humor. Um, many commentators have, have uh, offered the theory that simply because to survive in a country where you were not able to, you had to be careful what you said in front of other people, that one of the sort of stress relief was these kind of jokes that you shared in the pub uh, only, you know, about what's going on. And, but that, but that, that sense of humour, but it, it goes in before, of course, the, the communist, uh, communist coming to power uh, in 48, you know, Schweik and, and all that. That's also this kind of wry, subtle, dark, ironic humour. I mean, very much. You said you love Monty Python, I'm me too. Um, and I know that <laughs> straight after the revolution, Monty Python's Flying Circus was broadcast here. I think with subtitles, because I don't know how you dub it, but um, and I know that it was pretty popular with a certain kind of uh, part of the population. Mm -hmm. So definitely humour, definitely humour, definitely love of beer. Um, I mean, this is you know these are Britain and and the Czech uh, Czechia are two countries uh, continuously and long term dueling for the most the highest quantity of beer per capita drunk per year. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the Czechs normally win. Germans come in pretty close, and then you've got I think the, the, the Brits and, and the Irish, as far as I, I remember rightly. I never um, know how to go about this because you know I come from Moravia, right, from Brno, oh, and uh, I've never really yeah. much, you know, I've never been this beer person, and I don't know. Everybody's like, you know, check your beer, and I was like, man, don't we don't don't we have other things, you know, like to be? But yes, you're right. Yeah, but I'm just thinking this is this stereotypical image of like a beer country i'm just like i don't i'm not that much into this yeah, but well I, I could give an explanation of why that might be no. but uh, the fact is that this country has a very long brewing tradition it produces one of the most famous beers in the world pilsner Urquell, um and which properly uh, you know which they can actually cannot really brand themselves because they're brewed in czech in the in 
the adjective. So they really should be using Czechia instead. I see. Right. Well, I didn't get that that at all. But uh, ah, okay. But, I mean, so so they're, they're also the reason. And, and and I guess you know that that whole pub culture. I mean, what is the expression? Raise the price. Any government that raises the price of beer is going to fall. You know, something like that. So so it's it's been a central part of you know, look a good soldier shake. I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, over a hundred, uh, well, back in the Austro-Hungarian times. Um, so for sure, you know, beer is a cultural thing, and I think the humour goes along with it, and that pub culture. Unfortunately, it is d- diminishing a bit these days. But if you mm-hmm. go a bit further afield, it's still very much there. So that's to uh, the Czechs are much better drink. Offer the observation that uh, while um, Czechs also know how to get drunk to complete in inhebriation. Um, nevertheless, not it doesn't become violent or so uh, extreme as as uh, the uh, stereotypical Friday night in a British uh, uh, you know city like I don't know, um, Newcastle or something that, uh, you know, that, that you hear these terrible stories about. Um, and in fact, the British stag nights when they come to Prague, mm. which the locals hate, and I, I can see why, is noisy, rowdy groups of 20, 30 men, other head nights come to, um, for the cheap beer. It's, it's kind of unpleasant, you know, vomiting, etc. It's a bit of a stereotype. But um, uh, yeah, but that's, that's certainly a, a something that they have in common, this um, positive attitude to alcohol. <laughs> uh, and okay. the beer, Moravia with its wine and, and uh, this fruit dist- uh, distilling fruit. But otherwise, the, the the darker side, of course, every country, every culture has its darker side. Um, one th- let's go the middle way, first of all. First of all, is this kind of um, disrespect for rules, which many managers and a, lo- a large part of my life was uh, working with uh, top managers from primarily uh, Soste General, um, uh, moving and working in different countries. Um, uh, then, uh, you know, uh, I'm working with CEOs and C-level managers from abroad is kind of, they could never quite get it, you know. It's like the Czechs are, yes, okay, we'll do it that way, we'll do it that way, yeah, okay. And then they just go and do it their own way anyway. But the, 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 that, that's not so clean cut as being something that is negative. I mean, very often the Czechs are really handy. You know, they, they are good at finding shortcuts that, that work. Um, uh, that's it's kind of it's, it's an improvisation on the spot where you know corporations aren't the best place for that because corporations have to have rules they have to have a mm. uniform approach to everything uh, which is why they're such a they can be such a difficult place to work for for people but um, the general Czech approach is yeah yeah the authorities say this it's a healthy disdain for the authorities unfortunately perhaps yeah. in this COVID period uh, uh, backfiring a bit, but um, um, it's it's a healthy disdain for authority and the ability to improvise and produce a result that also works, even if it was done mm-hmm. very differently to how it was originally planned. Interesting. I wanted to ask you about this because uh, you do have these two perspectives. But there is a specific Czech humor I think is more commonly uh, accessed. 
uh, here than perhaps in other cultures that I've had the experience of, uh, and that is this kind of doyemni humor, yemni humor, the gentle humor mm. of uh, the, you know, svirak, um, uh, and even, mm. even uh, both worlds, the older and the younger, mental, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of, I mean... It's very uh, popular uh, with the German audience too, yeah, or German-speaking right, audience. Right. And it's a very gentle, loving humor. It's just poking a little bit of fun at various different characters and characters caricatures uh, and it's just so lovely of course they're beautiful they're wonderful directors and they're beautifully shot and and, and and wonderful and one thing I must say about Sheffield is worth pointing out is simply the beautiful uh, countryside it's a great place for rambling or sports uh, uh, or cycling um, as well but that's um, I'm, I, I diverge I diverge mm-hmm. um, so yeah so maybe that 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 gentle humor is something that is possibly connects the, the, the children's fairy tales and the uh, and and the adult films at least up until well even Rebbe continued with that uh, after the revolution as well so mm. it's, still, it's still a thing much criticised I've noticed the last ten years in that Czech <laughs> critic, film critic uh, circle but uh, which is a shame because I think that is lovely actually okay and on the other hand it, it's it's a matter of a taste it, yeah. A social commentary uh, in the 60s or 70s and 80s in your film would have been very difficult to get past the mm. censor. Uh, and so they had to think of clever ways of doing it with this kind of gentle humour that, that uh, sort of resonates without perhaps you realising quite why. But then you realise, oh, hang on. This is in fact a kind of a very indirect criticism of, of, of the, the powers that be in those days. But yeah. Mm, yeah, I think that's what Menzel mentioned, and uh, yeah, he's been very, very popular with the with the German-speaking audience as well. And there were lots of documentaries, and he mentioned, yeah, well, we weren't allowed to say those things directly, you know, and you know, like political satire, you could forget. Yeah, so that's uh, that's that's the way they had to go around it. But you also have uh, a few funny stories, right, about um, <laughs> you trying to integrate uh, <laughs> in the Czech setting as an Englishman. Uh, yeah, I share some. Okay, all right. Well, well, there was the one. I mean, um, in the, it was 1994 that my mum managed to get hold for me on the basis of her Czech nationality. Actually, this bit of paper that basically said I'm a Czech citizen or Czech national, Czech national to be not to get accurate. And then once I'd moved here in like 97, my girlfriend, uh, now my wife, uh, just, you know, said it'd be really handy if you could actually get Czech citizenship because otherwise you're going to be living here as a foreigner and no one and in those days I mean, no one knew what to do with me because I had this bit of paper saying that I'm a Czech national but I didn't have a Trvali Bobit, Trvali, a permanent address in the Czech Republic mm-hmm. which is a, not just a matter of saying I live there it's actually it has to be uh, it has to be sta- everything has to be stamped and filled in 20 times and you have to yeah. go around to offices and that's changing very slowly but it's still you know, there's the residuum like then you know, Austria-Hungary it's, yeah, it's still there, <laughs> still there. bureaucracy so, so, yeah yeah so so I went on this uh this trek this saga to get my Czech uh, citizenship card and uh, that was a problem because no one knew what to do with this British guy with a bit of paper saying I'm a Czech national oh We worked after, you know, but luckily I wasn't speaking that great Czech to do, to disentangle this, and my 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 girlfriend did it. But um, we worked out in the end. I have to have a permanent residence, so I got that with my cousin kindly. It had to be signed in some contract or something, and then after that I could go and apply for the Czech Chankali, the the um, citizens card. Now the first, so there are two stories that come from this. The first one is how I went to the lady in the office 
in this provincial town uh, to make the application. My wife gave me a bag. And in that bag, apart from the papers and the photograph, was a packet of coffee and a pair of tights. We're still and talking 1997, 19, right? 97, 8, yeah. Ah, okay. <laughs> and, was, and, you know, I was like, I mean, bribery is something that I'm actually very strong ethical feelings about. But this wasn't bribery. This was simply, I don't know what you call it, grease for the uh, administrative wheels. I needed to do it quite quickly because I live in the town, etc. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Normally it would take three months. And so what was in the bag? Coffee and? A pair of stockings. Pair of stockings, ladies' stockings, ladies' tights. Oh, and ladies' stockings, tights, and a bag of coffee, ground coffee. So then I went up to the office in my sort of double check, handed her the bag, gave her the papers, and and uh, and a few weeks later, was that done? So that was the first first thing. I mean, like from Mensal's film. (laughs) It's exactly, and the point about Mensal's films is they're so resonant, is because that is pretty much what it looked like, just with a little slight bit of hyperbole to, to, to make it a bit more cinematic. Yeah, but that was it, yeah. So that was the first one. The second thing is once I got this damn thing, uh, a bit of plastic, you know, uh, uh, with a photograph on it, they didn't have, in those days, 97, and still for many years later, it was unthinkable that someone who had Czech citizenship could have been born in any other country other than uh, Czechos, there was now the Czech Republic, uh, Czechoslovak Federal Republic. No, it was after the split. So um, whatever it was called, then Czechia, let's say. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. um, so on my uh, Obchanka, it had a lovely, lovely thing. It said it had uh, place of birth, London, Okres, which is county, Velka mm-hmm. Britannia, Great Britain. So there I was. Which is I wrong. Well, didn't have a didn't have start, didn't have country. There was no form, there was no place in the form for country and no place on the card. You know, okay. Automatically, if you're a Czech citizen, you were born in the Czech Republic. No? No. That's a mindset thing, of course. These days it, it exists. But um, yeah. Uh, so my I went around with this card saying place of birth, London, um, county, Great Britain. So I, I was very pleased to see that the Czechs had these colonial tendencies to you know, uh, to take over the United Kingdom uh, as one of its uh, one of its uh, uh, colonies and, and uh, counties. Uh, yeah, it's quite sweet. So that so that was me getting my chunk. And then having become a Czech citizen, I suddenly started getting worried. I was twenty four or something, and uh, and of course in those days there was Czech national service compulsory. Uh, it had been reduced, I think, from two years to one already at that point, but maybe not even that. Uh, maybe it was still two years with the alternative that if you didn't want to serve in the army, you could do a civil service, as they used to call it, which, you know, mm-hmm. work in a hospital or, or something like that for a year. Um, and I, di- I didn't want to go and do this. In Britain, they ended uh, national duty uh, back in the I don't know, 60s or even the 50s. I can't remember now. So, so it never occurred to me. So I was like nervous because I realized now that my name was probably going to get into some database now as a Czech citizen. And, and uh, luckily, the state of the public authorities' computer systems in those days was dismal. Today, they would probably easily find me, but in those days, you know, no chance. But still, I was very worried that suddenly I'd get a letter through the door calling me up to the, have the medical to go and do my, med- my uh, military service. So, you know, I... For, for many months, I was uh, very nervous about this. And I think about a year or two later, they actually uh, 
ended compulsory or I, I reached the age limit for calling up or something being called up. But so one of my friends had nothing better to do than to call my wife on her phone and say, this is a major Novak from the central um, central like uh, bureau or bureau for military service uh, we understand that uh, you are you know Roderick Lambert and uh, he in our records he hasn't done his military service yet can he please uh, come on Wednesday morning nine o'clock for his medical oh Jeez. Goodness, were your friends? I mean, what did you? How did your wife react then? Did she get it? Well, no. We got it later because he started laughing. But um, you know, you our blood froze in our veins. I can tell you that. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Goodness. So there you go. And then you know, I've got various language linguistic uh, um, uh, faux pas and, and, and uh, fails from me or various friends in, in what is a difficult language for foreigners to learn. So yeah. If you want yeah. them as well or we move on, it's the uh, same. Okay. <laughs> well, um, so when we started, you mentioned uh, that you were a coach and that you sort of exited the rat race and that's a very very modern sort of thing right you know everybody is escaping the rat race and everybody um is trying to be you know practicing mindfulness and it's all very very it's, a, it's an omnipresent thing and i think that um not everybody really knows what it means what motivated you then to do this because you also sort of have this years and decades of career in the corporate life what motivated you and then yeah how, how do you how do you feel about this and how long have you been doing that okay right well there we go that's 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 my second chapter basically uh, and um it wasn't so much motiv motiv motivated me to do it it motivated me to leave uh, mm -hmm. and it was a number of um, lots of factors i'll just name probably the kind of the three that were the most important uh, and it um, I turned 40, became a father all at the same time, and I moved from the, the insurance division of Sotte General to, to the, the big local bank here, Commercial Bank, you know, the top three banks uh, in uh, also a subsidiary of, of Sotte General. And uh, it was suddenly a huge company of 7,500 people. Um, and um, yeah, and uh, basically I found that I was unable to be faithful to any, or faithful, that's the word, but unable to satisfactorily apply myself to any of the things I was involved. So my work, I got up extra early so I could get there to get the work done so I could come back in time to, you know, put my son uh, to bed, bathe him or whatever on alternate days of the week. And yet, so I was getting up early, spending long days, uh, spending masses of time trying to make a difference. Okay. And this is a giant. This is a this is a this is an ocean liner that uh, even with the best will in the world will turn very slowly and its course change its course. Um, and then I was in HR. I was working with uh, board members, um, executive committee members, top managers, uh, and it was it was very frustrating. And, and there was a generational thing with the managers being what we today call you know end of the boomers, beginning of the Gen X, I'm, I'm Gen X, and there was this new generation coming up, the millennials, etc. And uh, there was, it was, I, I, to illustrate, 
I, I hired a, a consultant to work with me. Um, there was a, a new position created to work in my team. Um, she joined, she came from uh, IBM or somewhere um, and joined and she actually quit in her probation period after two months. I said, so, you know, so let's go. We had a good relationship, open communication. I said, look, it's nothing to do with you or the HR team. It's just simply, it's the way people talk to each other. Um, and when I when she said that, I was I realized, yeah, that is not a healthy environment to work in. Mm. So it was that combined with the inability to really make a difference. And even if there was a difference made, it was so small and uh, took such a long time that it was practically uh, practically uh, insignificant. Would you call it? Insignificant. Certainly not worth the amount of time I, I, I and energy I, I was uh, I was uh, trying to put into it. And then I wasn't being um, I wasn't being um, I wasn't properly actually being able to apply myself to my family. So you know, uh, to I the, 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 my, my my wife was uh, was those first couple of years um, at home. Even though after a year she did take on some sort of work she to do at home. And I was trying to basically be a, a, to share as equal as possible the, the child up with bringing, I desperately wanted to, to, to have an active influential role in bringing up my son. Um, and just, it just also wasn't, I wasn't being able to be, uh, fulfill that part of it. And then the third prong of that, you know, with, the, with the, either my son or my wife, it was really difficult. Um, and the third prong was quite simply uh, myself. I, at the end of that, all of that, there was no time. The only time actually I had for myself was that commute to, um, to work, the hour-long commute there, an hour-long back, because it's the other side of Prague, to read, listen to podcasts and stuff like that. Um, but little time for, for well, social life, um, sports, etc. I was getting fat. I was 90 reached 92 kilograms, which is uh, BMI of like 29, 30, I think it's, it's mildly obese. Started to get, one doctor was talking about metabolic illness. I'd never heard of it in those days. Uh, now I'm very aware of what was going on. Uh, and yeah, it was the onset of that midlife kind of corporate five to 10 years time, something's gonna go wrong. Um, so the, all these factors were kind of the, the, the stimuli. And then the question was what to do. Um, and it took me about two years of constant uh, reading stuff, listening to podcasts. One key book was uh, Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. You can recommend it over. It's a macro history of our genus, Homo sapiens. Mm. And uh, very simply, it helped me realize that as, a, as animals, we have no meaning in life. Our only meaning is to succeed in the evolutionary process. Um, that is it. So that for some might be depressing, for, but the fact is as sentient cognitive beings or cognizant beings, we need a purpose. That's what, that is the purpose in life is what differentiates us from animals. Um, but nevertheless, there is no one purpose given by evolution or nature except to pass on your genes in the evolutionary battle. So you are free to create your own purpose in life. And, it doesn't have to be that kind of job you fell into after university when you didn't really know what life was about or what you wanted and somehow something worked and you built up a career and it was great and the money and the mortgage and the house and the family and the cars and the status. Uh, and then you reach midlife and you suddenly say, what? Where did that time go? What have I got to show for it? Is this really what I want to do for the next 20 years? And I realized 
you don't have to do that. You can do anything you want to. So what's it going to be? And um, so in the conversations with my wife, we have a, a dream that we share. It's, it's really in, in, in progress. It's going to be fantastic. So yeah, so um, I, uh, I uh, finally made the decision that in a year's time, I'm going to quit my job. Didn't have anything set up. And I've just, uh, yes, that was perhaps one thing. My tip for anybody who's thinking about doing it, start your side hustle now so that in a few years down the road, you've got something to fall back on to, to, to develop further. It's already going to at least, you know, have some momentum there. And also- So true, so true. What you want to do, et cetera. So, so start now. Um, but uh, yeah, so I took a, basically I took a year off. I went on this year-long coaching course, and, and coaching, of course, is a fantastic process that helps people to work things out. But it's also um, a coach isn't a coaching isn't just about technique; it's about transformation of mindset. And uh, anybody who's been through a, a good thorough training or apprentice training course will have gone through this personal development journey that you come out of quite differently. So. That's what I do. And um, yeah, and I have a program to help people exactly like me uh, to do it in 10, to make, to, to work it out in 10 weeks, not two years. Mm. And, uh, and we look at basically, we look at all the things that I, sh- if I had known I could have gone to talk and get help from someone, I would have done because we look at your personality type, what sort of things, where you're in your flow, where you're not in your flow. We look at your values, which one of the, your core personal values, which ones are being underserved, what to do about it. And we look at also your sense of purpose. We find that so that actually you're aware of it, even if right now it's not exactly what you're going to do. At least you know what it is. And you get you come out with a toolkit that helps you make those decisions going forward. You're confident that these are the right decisions. And you can you don't have to quit the corporate rat race. I was an extreme. But between that and the smallest possible change, there's a very wide spectrum. You might find you don't want to be a manager anymore. You want to go back to that speciality that you loved. Uh, you did you loved doing earlier, even if it doesn't mean a pay cut. What the hell? You're going to be happy. You have time. Um, you might find that it's maybe just the environment of the company or the sector you work in. So maybe it's, you're going to have to go work. You know, you're going to find similar job in a different environment that's going to be much more uh, in line with your values, your purpose, and your way of working and thinking anyway so that's one of those things and uh, i lost 20 kilograms um i've kept it off um i lost all my previous medical um let's say developing issues um have gone away and and i must say that i now throw my i don't i don't have those sunday evening blues uh me and my wife we always used to have sunday evening blues and it's like, oh god sunday evenings watch a film have a glass of wine and sort of steal ourselves from yeah and, and oh, i know exactly what you're talking about it's so inspiring <laughs> it's so inspiring listening to you talking about this i'll give you one statistic Gallup did a poll in 2014 to 2016 of over 6 million employees around the world. Um, and uh, their findings were that only 15% of those employees around the world are actively engaged. That means they basically they do their work with energy and enthusiasm and passion. Um, and uh, there's something like 20 4% are actively disengaged. That means that they actually badmouth their work, they complain about it. And the rest, so 55, whatever is left, 60%, they're what they call sleep, sleep workers. 
basically they go to work, they dedicate the time, they don't dedicate the energy, they're disengaged from their work. So I wasn't alone, you're not alone. There are literally uh, millions of people who do that. Uh, and I would say, be brave, have a think about it, go and talk to someone and find out if that is the state you want to continue your lives in, or actually if perhaps you want to try and make some positive changes to, to make it a bit more worthwhile. Cool. Well, that's, that's nice. I mean, that's a nice ending, I would say, of our amazing interview. I mean, people can find you on LinkedIn, right? Roderick Lambert. Roderick Lambert. Exactly. Any other channels that you're active on or that you'd like um, to mention? I'm trying to work out this Clubhouse thing. Uh, so again, I'm Roderick Lambert, at Roderick Lambert on Clubhouse. Follow me. Um, I'm, you can, you can uh, find me on Facebook. I'm starting to develop that. I will set up a, a company page you can follow later. Um, uh, or just email me if you want to get in touch. It's Roderick, spelled R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K, dot Lambert, like the actor, at gmail.com. Um, and, and just reach out and we'll have a chat and... Uh, anymore lovely i'll put that down then to the uh, to the episode into that description of the of the episode where people can find you because i think it's yeah it's a, it's a very inspiring story and it's a very real thing i would say and uh, lots of people would say okay well that you know that doesn't that doesn't it's it's not something that would concern me and you know i'm, I'm doing okay and bam there it is you know a year later so yeah definitely inspiring Roderick, thank you so much for being my guest on Xlender and for sharing this great story of your background and integrating in uh, my home country, uh, in Czechia, then uh, with my audience. And I hope that it's not the last time that we've been chatting online. Let's see how Xlender grows and where it is going to <laughs> head because it's heading very very interesting ways now and, and maybe you know from the coaching textbook it's not the result it's the journey it's not the destination it's the journey it's the process it's the journey that is yeah that is um get the most satisfaction from but thank you Eva, for inviting me um i would like to say in in honor of your home country and my home country um it is a wonderful country and i strongly recommend anybody who wants we can travel to come and visit mm. not just prague which is enough anyway for two mm -hmm. weeks uh, you'll never still won't discover everything but the, the rest of the country the mountains the forests the lakes the even moravia of course with its lovely wine growing undulating country the, mm -hmm. um, even the industrial north has been yeah it's being revitalized and it, it's really worth visiting so many parts of, of what is a beautiful country and and yeah and, and I, i'm happy here it's my home and i expect i will probably die here so yeah <laughs> i'm happy Cool. Well, fingers crossed to, to all of you coping with COVID. I mean, it's very, I would say it's uh, the most severe situation now during the whole year. And uh, from what I know from my family, I mean, they're, they're all coping okay. Um, they're doing okay. But we who are, who are watching it, you know, from, from abroad, I mean, really, really fingers crossed. We're thinking of you guys. Critical situation. Um, let's not but go it's there. you know <laughs> yes, we've been on. through so many more, so many more like way more difficult situations that I believe that you know this is something that unites us as a nation. I'd say even though you know even if you think about the bickerings and, and the politics and so on, somehow maybe it's the idealization as I mentioned. I but um, yeah, a lot. <laughs> but on the other hand, maybe I'm just seeing it too darkly from within. Without yes, that. yes, of course. But uh, <laughs> but fingers crossed, guys. 
Thank you. Okay. And good luck with the podcast and with your daughter. So maybe Thank she you. pick up at least one one extra language. Uh, uh, you know, from, that from would the, be the case. Don't worry, the brains can manage. Of course. Children. Much, okay. much more available than we are. Thank you. Well, then have a good time then uh, back Thank in you. Prague and speak soon, hopefully. Okay, bye, Cheers. Roderick. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.